Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Stand by for the most extraordinary chain of events ever swept up into high adventure. Airplane is drama. This woman has to be gotten to a hospital. A hospital? What is it? It's a big building with patients, but that's not important right now. Airplane is dancing. Airplane is action. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Like I picked the wrong week to quit amphetamines. You know it. You love it. That was some audio from the movie Airplane, the 1980 hit spoof, written and directed by brothers David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams. David Letterman said film comedy became different after that movie, and it's one of the most quotable comedies of all time. Based on a 1957 film by the name of Zero Hour, the story of a washed-up pilot summoned to greatness on a potentially doomed aircraft spoofed the genre of airline design disaster movies and wound up grossing $83 million in 1980 and became part of the zeitgeist of American popular culture. The Anything Goes slapstick and furious pop culture riffs pioneered in Airplane can be seen today in everything from the comedy stylings of The Simpsons and South Park to Family Guy and big screen parodies like Epic Movie, Date Movie, and the Scary Movie franchises. David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams have a new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane. It's available now wherever you buy fine books, and it's all about the making of the movie and the film's lasting impact. I Zoomed with David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams recently to talk about the book and reminisce about the movie. You used to record, the three of you, late night movies looking for commercials and things to spoof. Uh, and you would sort of redub them on stage. Then you found Zero Hour, written by Arthur Haley. It's a pretty good movie, very nicely structured, but you had to make it laughable. Uh, so, David, let's start with you. What did you do to that script and to that idea? Because you had such great affection for it, uh, What did you? how did you start? Well, we I think we started with just the whole plot and a man, well, you know, even before that, we thought maybe we could redub this, but uh, with our voices. But then it was a very short leap to go to why don't we just recast the whole thing? So if you can imagine, you know, our delight in you know thinking of that concept, and then then we started going just you know line by line and scene by scene, um, and and putting in the jokes, which that was the first thing that we did. And so I mean, there was. There was actually a character who said, uh, looks like I put picked the wrong week to quit smoking. Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit smoking. At various points in the script, we just upped the ante a little bit. So that was easy. There was another character. I don't know if it was in that movie. It was probably in another movie that said, uh, how do you take your coffee? And, you know, and that that line came up. But there was and and also surely you can't be serious was a was a straight line. So that's what we that's the first pass. We put in all those jokes. There's actually a line in Zero Hour that we just quote verbatim in the movie that says, I got to find someone back there who not only can fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. Finding someone back there who not only can fly this plane, but who didn't have fish for dinner. I mean, that's just a godsend <laughs> for anybody who's in, in the parody business. And, and I might add, 
not only was there, you know, you alluded to the great structure, but that was all in Zero Hour, including the love story. At the beginning of uh, Zero Hour, the woman says to the man, I can't live with a man I don't respect. And, you know, when when Airplane first came out, that was written by Arthur Haley, but when Airplane first came out, most people assumed that line was written by David based on his relationships with a number of women. <laughs> Poor David, no women respected him, you know? <laughs> well, I'm just glad that you guys aren't mentioning my heroin problems. Jerry, you worked on this script, uh, the three of you, for five years. How did it change over the years? Well, I think more than anything, um, more jokes uh, and maybe um, uh, more of an emphasis on on story, although, as Jim said, a lot of that was uh, was there for us. Um, but, but also, I, I think at the beginning, we were really in love with all these straight lines, you know, mm -hmm. these tough guys talking the plane down. And and we realized we just had much too much of that between the jokes. So so a lot of it was uh, uh, cutting and trimming and and making sure the plot uh, moves smoothly. And then when we got to Paramount, we added uh, on the advice of, of uh, the executive in charge, we, we added the flashbacks uh, to establish Bob and Julie's love story. Uh, so, um, you know, there was it was a little bit at a time, but more than anything, we we just kept stuffing in another joke. And David, were there originally supposed to be commercials in it, like you were watching uh, a, a late night movie? Our first concept was to do a night of late night TV. And in fact, the first title of this, the first draft of the script was called The Late Show. You're listening to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams on The Richard Krause Show. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. It was broken up by commercial segments because... That we could just, we just put those in directly from our show. And, you know, the first person that we gave it to was a, a television producer who we, who we knew. And he, he said, you know, the, I, I'm into this movie, the flying melodrama, but the commercials seem to interrupt the flow. And so we, at first, the next draft was fewer commercials. And then finally, we just took the commercials out. And Jim, when the script was ultimately finished, uh, it was kind of a tough sell. And one of you in the book says, comedy is hard to understand on the page. Was Airplane even more so hard to understand because it was such a new style? The sort of deadpan comedy was something very new at the time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even though Paramount hired us and paid to make the movie, um, I don't think they really understood what they had till after the first day's dailies. And it coincidentally, the first day we filmed Leslie saying, uh, don't call me Shirley. And evidently that's when, you know, Paramount called and said, oh, now we get it. And it was also in our deal, in our contract, that they could fire us after two weeks. Because, I mean, we were first-time directors and three of us. 
And so I think that first day's dailies uh, cleared up that problem. We we never <clears throat> um, almost didn't expect people, at least after a while, to understand the concept of exactly how straight we were playing it. Uh, we we you know we uh, uh, we talked about that and about the, the casting of those kinds of guys, and they said fine, but they really didn't. I don't think fully understand how that was going to play until they saw it in the first day of dailies. And did you deliberately choose that scene to the, because it's sort of emblematic of the kind of humor that you wanted in the film? Did you yes. choose that deliberately yes, we, to be the we first? Chose, we chose that uh, because it had a lot of lines that would demonstrate what, what we were doing. Like, surely you can't be serious. And there were uh, a few others. My recollection, and I think we write about this in the book, is that that the scenes in the cockpit were chosen by the producer, John Davison, to start the, the shoot because they were the simplest scenes to shoot. I mean, we were three-time, first-time directors, and there's very little you can do to screw up shooting in a uh, cockpit. And especially when you already have a template from uh, zero hour. Rolls of seats facing forward. How could we screw that up? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, Robert Stack, Leslie Nielsen, Peter Graves, uh, Lloyd Bridges, they're all actors who, up until that time, I don't think any of them had done any comedy. And I, I read in the book that Peter Graves actually threw the script in the garbage when he first read it. How did you convince him to sign on? That's a true story. He was so, and I guess we figured out later that when actors read the script, they just read their own parts. And, you know, he, it, it probably appeared to Peter that he was a pedophile, but he, he, he absolutely he got that idea. Really? No, no. So he, his agent passed. And so our executive producer, Howard Koch, who was really indispensable to this, to, uh, to this production called up peter graves who we knew and uh, he said before you completely say no come down to the studio and meet the boys as we were referred to at that time and, and he might That's like, a while ago so <laughs> thought that you know he was going to meet three you know drugged out weirdos you know i think we we did pretty well to uh you know play the the old the role of these three innocent uh, midwestern guys so uh, and, 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 and he did sign on, he said, and also I think his wife and his daughter were, were really helpful in convincing him to do it. Uh, let's talk about Lloyd Bridges. In our minds, he was playing Lloyd Bridges, um, and he wanted a character <laughs> and, <laughs> and we just tried to explain that, no, just do it like you do it in any drama. And and uh, it it just be a tough guy and be Lloyd Bridges is yeah. what we wanted and and I think more than anyone Lloyd, you know, had a little trouble with with that. Although you know, after he saw the movie, he he loved it, and then it was a much different thing when he was in the Hot Shots movies with Jim. And uh, Leslie Nielsen, you cannot imagine this movie without Leslie Nielsen now, uh, but he was the fourth choice. Uh, in the book, you say he was 
uh, as they used to say, the guy you cast the night before. Leslie, uh, for his part, is kind of a closet comedian, which we didn't know. And he's a prankster. And he had done nothing but these serious character roles in movies and endless television dramas. And he was anxious to do it. And so uh, that, that was a happy uh, circumstance to get one him. Of the things, one of the things we didn't understand as first-time directors is that actors actually come to parts um, wanting to know who their character is. Just his background, you know. <laughs> What are my motivations? Stuff like that. We thought actors just came to read the lines. Right. So that was part of our learning curve. Well, you were all about uh, 30 years old, something like that, working with these uh, icons of cinema, first movie uh, as directors. Uh, were there ever a moment when you thought, oh, this is a terrible mistake? We've made a terrible mistake here. No. I mean, in, in what area? Casting? Or, or or anything no we always were we were so naive and so headstrong we just we always thought this was a great idea and it would be a big hit and, and we never thought it was a mistake to direct it right we, we just i mean and we were always pretty headstrong but of course you always have there are always moments you have doubts as the you know as we talk about in the book that first screening at, on the Paramount lot was a disaster, you know? And so like, oh my God, is this really any good? And you, you do have moments, but in general, I, I don't think we we ever really had a regret that we shouldn't have done something. I mean, small things, of course, but not, not about uh, directing or the script or the way we were casting it. You're listening to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams on The Richard Krause Show. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Plus, we had going to our advantage the fact that for years we had re uh, run a comedy theater hmm. where we would get up on stage, three clearly uncomfortable actors would get up on stage and perform these skits in front of live audiences. So by the time we got to, to airplane, we kind of knew what, what worked because we had lived through those years of the live theater. Mm -hmm. And one of you in the book says, I love Bill Murray and people who do comedy well, but it wouldn't have been the same if a comedian uh, had said that line. And I think we're talking about the don't call me Shirley. Um, tell me why. Um, our our humor is very much scenes we'd like to see. You know, we were always big Mad Magazine fans. And so the funny thing to us uh, was to to really present the movie just the the way a serious movie would be presented. I mean, the music, you know, we always told Elmer, we want a B score, you know, and he he got it, you know, and he did that kind of corny score. We didn't want a, you know, a, a Magnificent Seven score or something like that and or, or anything modern. And, and so we liked that. I mean, it was all about that old style of acting, that tough, hard-hitting acting. And the other thing was really not letting on that they knew they were in a comedy. That was the big thing for us. And Bill Murray or Chevy Chase or those guys, they're 
they're comedians so that the way they play it, they can't, um, it, it, you know, in fact, it would have been a disappointment for them to try to do it the way Stack or something did. Hold on, sorry. It, anyway, to try to <clears throat> do it the way, uh, uh, you know, Stacker Bridges would do it because people want them to be funny, you know, the way they are. And and also, you kind of, there's not only did we want people who were not identified with comedy, but also these actors were kind of identified with an old style of, of kind of B-drama in a way. In other words, I'm not sure even a Robert De Niro would have worked in those roles because you know he's he's too he's known as too great an actor. Right. And a good example of this probably would be the you know the the captain over and the 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 little boy scene. And Peter Graves, it's one thing, and then Bill Murray or Chevy Chase would have been a completely different thing. It would not have been funny at all. One of the great kind of blessings of all we got so many breaks in making this movie. But one of the great ones was um, Paramount wanted us to cast uh, David Letterman as Stryker, the guy who throws, flies down the plane. And so he actually came in and did a screen test and he wasn't very good. And he he was rejected for the part. And he was as thrilled, and we write about this in the book, as, as um, we were that we got to move on. Well, he says in the book, David Letterman says, film comedy became different after that movie. Why do you think Airplane, your movie, struck such a chord? I think it's two things. And one is what <clears throat> we were just talking about, the that, that you know, ha having those guys really not acknowledge that they're in a comedy. And the other thing is the pace. Mm. I mean, there is just joke, joke, joke. And we kept... Um, it kept moving so fast. And I think those two things uh, um, people really tended to pick up on. Do you think that the spoof movie is still something that exists? Very few people can do them mm -hmm. uh, occasionally. And then when it is done, then it becomes, if it's successful, it's been, it's done to death. And so it, it falls out of favor temporarily uh, after after the Naked Guns and a few other copycats, uh, Spoof was dead until the Wans came along and did Scary Movie, and it was it was hugely successful. And then um, then it was dead for a while after that. And I mean, it's uh, I, I'm working on a, a new movie because I can do it and it's funny. So uh, that's what I'm I'm doing. I'm in pre production now on on a movie. It'll be a spoof. Thank you so much for spending a bit of your day with me today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Richard. You've been listening to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams on The Richard Krause Show. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. In this segment, we'll meet New York City-based stand-up comedian Tina Frimmel. She has performed at the Just for Last Festival in Montreal, is a regular at the Comedy Cellar in New York City, and has a large following online for her unique take on her own physical disability and fearless honesty about the social assumptions that come with living with cerebral palsy. 
Tina Fremmel joined me via Zoom from New York City. It never really occurred to you that comedy could be a profession when you were a kid. What was it that got you involved on that career path? Comedy never really occurred to me. Um, but kind of randomly in uh, my final, final year of college, I went to college for writing and journalism. Uh, in my final, final year of college, I happened to get uh, into British panel shows, which, you know, in America, they're, they're not very heard of, but all they are is, you know, just um, a panel of comics doing kind of like a game show. Right. And, and there are so many of them, too. Oh, gosh, yeah. There's so many of them on television over there. <laughs> but I do remember thinking, wow, these people get to just sit there and make their friends laugh and get paid to do it. Like, oh, I can't think of a better job to have. Um, and uh, it wasn't until about a year later when... Um, so I I came up in Vermont, and uh, which is only about an hour south of Montreal, where every year they have Just for Laughs, which is you know the the biggest comedy festival in the world. Um, and I came up there with a friend just to see this one very niche, specific British comedian, and it was there that I really. I I looked at the vast landscape of all different kinds of people being comics, and finally, then did the light bulb go off? Like, I wonder, I wonder if I could do this. When you made that decision, then there's a big step between saying, "Well, I wonder if I could do this," and then actually doing it. What were your first jokes? Yeah, you know the the funny thing was. When I began like the first ever open mic set that I did, it had nothing to do with me or my experience being disabled or any anything like that. I was trying to be very whimsical and very kind of I, I remember I had like jokes about coffee and like of fairies and poop and like <laughs> and <laughs> it I, re I remember the first time I ever performed I was so nervous and I did it I just and it got nothing like no laughs no laughs um, at all none uh, well I found out a year later by the host of that open mic I happened to bump into him a year after that when I had actually gotten a bit successful in comedy. And he said, oh, yeah, like, I remember that night. You were actually pretty funny, but you were holding the microphone by your waist. Like, <laughs> no one could hear what you were saying. <laughs> so, um... Thankfully, you know, after that one awful first set, first show, I, I didn't give up. And I actually enrolled in 
um, a six-week stand-up comedy class at the comedy club in Burlington, the Vermont Comedy Club. And uh, it was there that I remember, I think by week two, I had written a whole new a whole new set of jokes again about like random things like cars and coffee. But in the beginning of it, I said something like, um, I've got nothing to complain about. I've got good friends, a good family, um, a roof over my head. I'm a little bit brain damaged, but other than that, fine. You're listening to comedian Tina Frimmel on The Richard Krause Show. Find out more about her at www.tinafrimmel.com. And that just, the wave of laughter and I I think in hindsight probably relief, <laughs> like breaking the ice. That 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 one sentence got me. It completely turned my comedy into oh wait a second, this is mm-hmm. what's holding me back. Well, I think that people relate to comedians who feel authentic to them. And so if you did not address that you have cerebral palsy in your act, people would be, well, why isn't why isn't she telling us this? You know, yeah. why isn't she talking about her life? And it may not be exactly relatable to their life, but it 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 is genuine and it's authentic and it means something. And I think that's probably that big door that you kick open by talking about it on stage. You know, exactly. And I think people do get surprised because I do actually, I I don't let let myself off the hook when it it comes to trying to relate to people. Um, Even even while I know that the vast majority of people watching my comedy don't have cerebral palsy. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I think you know, part of what I do a lot in my comedies, not it's not simply like self-deprecating, just dogging on myself for something I have no control over, but instead it's um uh I love kind of turning the mirror back on the audience. And I mean the prime example is that I open every comedy set that I have saying, I'm Tina, I'm disabled. Don't worry, you're going to be okay. And, <laughs> you know, it's, I, I feel like that, that always sets the tone. And in a way, even though it is specific to me being disabled and me being having cerebral palsy, a lot of people can just simply totally relate to making people nervous or, or having some perception just hoisted upon you with nothing. Like- I, uh, 100%. I often think that the more specific a story is or a joke is, in a strange way, the more universal it is. 
And because whatever you may be feeling as a person with cerebral palsy, that people maybe are looking at you or judging you or something like that, when you talk about that in your act, it is exactly hitting nerves that people have uh, who feel insecure about something else in their own life or whatever. And that is the, the universal feel of it all. But it's funny because you would think that those jokes would be so specific just to you, but they're not. And they, that that's what I think audiences relate to. One other thing I say right at the top of my set is that a lot of people think that I suffer from cerebral palsy when in fact I, I don't I I have cerebral palsy I suffer from people people yeah you know? I, I love that line <laughs> and I think that's that gets the biggest just amen from uh, the reaction I've gotten to that both um every night when I do that but also just online it's it really speaks and preaches to the choir and the choir being everyone. That was comedian Tina Frimmel on The Richard Krause Show. Find out more about her at www.tinafrimmel.com. And Frimmel is spelled F-R-I-M-L. We're going to meet author Ainsley Hogarth. She's the author of four novels, including Mother Thing, a darkly comedic novel about a woman who must take drastic measures to save her husband and herself from the vengeful ghost of her mother-in-law that was chosen as one of the New York Times picks for Best Book of the Year in 2022. Today, we're here to talk about her new novel, Normal Women, a darkly comedic story about how we value female labor and how we don't. In the story, a new mother becomes embroiled in a dangerous mystery when her friend, a controversial entrepreneur, goes missing. Ainsley Hogarth, join me via Zoom. Tell me a little bit uh, just about uh, what inspired this book, because I see themes that are, are perhaps drifting through and around from your other work, but what inspired this particular book? Yeah, so that's, it is actually kind of a bit of a B-side to Mother Thing <laughs> in a way. Um, it's, uh, so Mother Thing was about <clears throat> sort of this uh, unwritten sort of rule or expectation that a, a wife is sort of responsible for her husband's mental health. Mm -hmm. And then normal women is all of the other labors that a wife is unofficially responsible for. So it's not a horror novel. I mean, I shouldn't say necessarily it's not. It depends on your uh, definition of horror, I think. Yes. <laughs> not technically a horror novel. Um, but yeah, so it's sort of about... It's about that side of things and what kind of inspired it was um, having a baby and just seeing sort of firsthand how financially vulnerable it makes you to have a child um, in so many different ways and how quickly, particularly because I had my baby during the pandemic um, and my partner and I, uh, she turned, you know, daycare age right in the middle of it when we were still sort of like, washing our groceries and doing crazy stuff so we were like well we're not going to send her out to daycare so you know for all of the different reasons that it makes more sense quote unquote I'm air quoting for women to stay home I ended up quitting my job to stay home with her and yeah and it was just that sort of and I'm not alone in that lots of women unfortunately quit their jobs during the pandemic for the exact same reason 
Um, yeah, and just sort of how quickly how quickly financial dependence can happen to mothers. And then the steps that mothers will take, perhaps to to take the next step forward out of uh, being put in a financial hole in a situation like this. And so that's where the novel uh, blossoms and becomes something else. It it takes a a step a, a little bit further. So tell me a little bit about uh, the temple, which is where Danny, your main character goes to uh to get a job and then it changes everything yeah um so she decides that uh so she she realizes how financially vulnerable she's left herself so she decides to it starts to ease her anxiety a bit to consider the fact that she could always be a sex worker that this is sort of like a resource that is innate to her body that she could sell and make money because you know other options wouldn't they're just honestly not as they're not financially they're not as good an option financially they're not as good an option for her to be a caretaker as well um it just pre presents itself as like a a really great idea a really great path so yeah so she meets renata who is a the founder of the temple which is a um yoga studio slash brothel uh and they are going to cure toxic masculinity through sex work and Danny sees this as her calling, that she, this is something that she feels very strongly about and she's going to do it. You're listening to author Ainsley Hogarth on The Richard Krause Show. Her novel, Normal Women, is available wherever you buy fine books. Is there any real world equivalency for you coming up with the story or is this a complete work of imagination in terms of the temple and Renata and all the other um, story threads that come out of that? So there are certainly a lot of wellness, like the sort of like the sex work wellness pipeline is exists for sure. Um, there's like a whole episode of like Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop show about sort of, you know, um, sexual wellness and how and spiritual wellness and how these things are connected. Um, there was also a woman in, oh, geez, I think it was Arizona who had a sort of um, like holy place slash brothel. Um, and her whole thing was, I think she was trying to help people achieve like enlightenment mm. with sex work. So these are, these are things that are out there for sure. Um, and I think, th so the, the sort of angle of mine is that, um, you know, sex work is a path for, financial independence for women, a viable path for financial independence for women. In my opinion, the only that's the only reason it's illegal at all is because then men would have to start paying for this resource that they largely get for free because the system is set up that way. Um, and with the characters in my book, it's sort of like an imagined origin story for the um, for the decriminalization or legalization of sex work. And I think it probably would be through, you know, wealthy white women and wellness finally sort of being like, oh, I get it. Like this is, you know, this is, this is, a, this isn't what, you know, I imagine sex work to be. This is like the goop sex work. Um, yeah. There's so a spiritual kind of path through to it. Spiritual path, Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea there. For some reason, in my head, as I was going through the book, I, I was thinking of 
just things that I saw over the pandemic. And there were all these shows about uh, cults and sex work. Was Nexium something that came to mind? Any of that sort of thing? Yeah, it definitely was, particularly, um, you know, just this, um, just this, this sort of, this charismatic grifter mm-hmm. um, and, and this, how hungry people, I did, like I did, I watched that Nexium documentary um, and just how hungry people are for meaning um, in their, in their work or in their, just in their daily lives and <clears throat> how difficult it is you know, if you're a mother, if you're a stay-at-home mother, you know, you have people sort of always, obviously there's, you have a lot of meaningful moments with your child, but there's sort of this, like, um, you hear this annoying thing a lot where it's like, um, oh, being a mom is the hardest job in the world. And like, sure, in some ways, maybe, um, but it's, it's sort of this thing where if that people really believe that to be true, mothers would be paid for it like that would be (laughs) then there would be some money to that (laughs) um yeah so I think that there was a combination of like that sort of Nexium-y stuff and like that meaning stuff and that like and then also my own anxieties like Mm -hmm. for the first time not having a job at all for the first time sort of like being very dependent on my partner um yeah so I think all that stuff probably there's a big cult soup happening in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) That was author Ainsley Hogarth on The Richard Krause Show. Her novel, Normal Women, is available wherever you buy fine books. A big thanks to Ainsley for stopping by to chat. Also, a big thanks to comedian Tina Frimmel for stopping by. Find out more about her at www.tinafrimmel.com. Also, a big thanks to David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams. Their new book, Surely You Can't Be Serious, The True Story of Airplane, is available now wherever you buy fine books. Airplane is action. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.